everyone. You're listening to The Katie Helper Show, and I'm your host, Katie Helper. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show, where for just $1 a month, you can help make the show happen. And for $5 a month, you'll qualify for great bonus content, including an alternative podcast feed and rarely seen clips that aired on our live shows. We're going to bring in our first guest. I'm so excited. She's making her debut on the Katie Helper Show. Uh, You may have seen her uh, on lots of different programs, including on The Breakfast Club. Very exciting moment. I'm speaking of none other than movement lawyer Olayami Oluren. Olayami. Olayami. Sorry. I got like nervous. Yes. I got uh, performance anxiety. Olayami. Welcome. Hey, boo. How, how are you? Thanks so much for coming. Good. Good. I'm good. So not only are you a, a lawyer, but you are also, I think, a TikTok star. Is that fair to say? TikTok, but my, my face be places videos, certainly yeah. socials. <laughs> but yeah. how do you make those really good videos you make? Are those on TikTok? They're everywhere. I, honestly, they just they're my rants. They're my regular. <laughs> they're, and you do them just, just onto your camera? Like do you post yeah, them? like literally standard on my phone? Like wow. the way y'all get them straight from you, like, oh rant. <laughs> they're <laughs> really good. Stuff. And then do you do the the subtitles on uh, any particular program automatically instagram will like automatically oh, click okay. captions and it automates them wow all right so it's yes. not i i thought it had a snap i thought it was um a tiktok look to it but it could you be know, you thought it was exceptionally talented but yeah no way, yeah but, oh well no. you are exceptionally talented but not but but i thought you were exceptionally talented on another level in another yes, area no. <laughs> okay no. well Thank you so much for coming. And you're someone who covers a lot of uh, important issues, especially crime, copaganda. You debunk a lot of myths that are spouted out by not just Republicans, because that's obvious. We know Republicans do a lot of dog whistling, or sometimes it's not dog whistling, it's just overt. Sadly, the Democrats play at this game too. So can you just like explain to people what copaganda is, how people can recognize it, and what realities are being covered up by this propaganda? Yeah. Well, propaganda is basically the way that like mass incarceration, policing, the criminal system, this idea that like the system is about justice, the prosecutors are all the good guys and other people that find themselves in the system are bad. And it's not just in that we get we get fed that in media, right? We get in our regular mainstream just journalism coverage, right? They take police narratives as absolute fact, they present that as as absolutes and they just um they, they, they perpetuate that bias to us as, as fact and objectivity. But beyond that, right, beyond just the fact that we're uh, filled with, like, law and order, snapped, just, I mean, the whole true crime genre, just every cop show, Lucifer, it, it's in everything. But it's also in other things, like little things that people don't even think of. It's in the Powerpuff Girls, it's in Darkwing Duck, it's in all these little, like, and that's the way. To me, those are more concerning than... Like law and order, at least to some degree, you know. Once I've told you what propaganda is, you think, okay, law and order, you know those things qualify. But you're not going to think about it like, ooh, Darkwing Duck, why is Bush the villain? You know, certain things like that. So it's that way. It's the way that constantly throughout our media and our everyday life, we're constantly being programmed and um, basically uh, indoctrinated into believing uh, that our system our system is the only way, one, that that's the only way justice in the criminal system are synonymous, but two, that the people who find themselves in there are villains. 
Something that a lot of commentators are saying is that Democrats, if they lose, or one of the reasons they're going to lose is because they are running on defunding the police, which I didn't know they were running on that. So how do you respond to that allegation? They're liars. I mean, they're just liars. They're liars. They're shameless liars. They're liars. Where where are they? Can you find me exactly who is running on the defund the police platform? Like, this, this is the thing that I find interesting, right? Like, I've noticed this, and I'm not going to call any names, but a lot of these uh, 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 commentators that are alleged to be on our side that have taken this uh, this flagship of running uh, propaganda and all this, like, right-wing nonsense about crime, they keep being like, oh, the rest of us are gaslighting them, are like, liable, oh, there's a crime wave. Here's my thing. Let's forget forget the fact that there isn't this massive crime wave. Forget that. Let's pretend, let's pretend that's the case. I'm going to give you that. What we're currently doing is... What you, mass incarceration? That's what we're doing. That's what we're doing. We're doing mass incarceration. We're doing that. Like we have the police have not been defunded anywhere. All of the places that they're mainly highlighting, um, that they're mainly highlighting, um, as the so sorry, I was getting a call and it just zoomed me out like this, but I'm fine with it. But all the places that they're mainly highlighting, like New York City, Chicago, LA, all these places that they're painting out like Gotham City, right? All these like areas with all the crime, we give more money to the police than anybody. Like, okay, let's say it's true. Let's say New York City is Gotham City. We have a massive crime with the Democrats are in power and they have given more money to policing, more money to mass incarceration. So what's your problem? How what is the issue here? You you say we're supposed to vote Republican, so Republicans can do what? The same thing that according to you, crime is still increasing. I'm living for this zoom dramatic effect. This is oh, oh, I love it. I'm I'm here for it. So yeah, that's that's what I would say to them. They're liars. They're liars and it also don't make no sense because they're basically advocating. That's my thing. The only method we're doing right now, the only thing I have never had my political dreams become law. Not one of my political dreams are law policy. So if things ain't going right, they're not going right under y'all's current status quo. So that is not an argument for us to keep doing more of the same. That is not an argument against Democrats, unfortunately, for them. That's how I feel. Yeah. This is one of the biggest things that keeps getting talked about in these elections. And it kind of drives me crazy because... As Olami was just pointing out, mass incarceration is the system. It's what's happening now. The police have not been defunded and no one's really running on that. So why do you think it is, though, that Democrats are not framing their reality on their own? Why are they just reacting to these talking points coming from the right? Um, because that's what they do in general. That's what that's all they do in general. All they ever do is respond. That is the problem with why we constantly lose. Just as a just as a point of strategy, the minute you let the other person frame the entire narrative, you've lost. The minute you let them frame it and you're responding, you've lost. It's just that simple. And Democrats do that with everything. Like I believe Republicans practice and successfully they successfully practice a politics of distraction. They're just constantly throwing bones at us, and every time. Dems go running instead of actually doing that. And I also think there's a level of Democrats just always being scared about what is the natural, natural response. Like you're in an adversarial system. Those are your opponents. They're always going to make a move and you have to make a move back. But instead, what Democrats do is every time Republicans do something or maybe might do something is all this fear and panic. I don't understand why the logical response has not been for like, for example, take New York City. Hochul and Zeldin should not be, they shouldn't be close, let alone as close as they are. But yet, they are, because instead of Hochul and them this entire time, they've let Eric Adams. And this is the governor, just for people who know, uh, aren't locals, this is the governor's race that we're talking about in New York State. Yeah. Let me let me give you a back. So the governor's race in New York City right now, our, our governor is Hochul, who had come in after, you know, the Cornwall scandal. She's a dumb. Zeldin is a right wing extremist. Um, and normally our very blue New York City, it's not close. Normally it's supposed to be firmly blue. 
But unfortunately, we've had, you know, uh, fair mongering cop, Eric Adams, just all year, just every day. Like, that's the thing. And I, and I don't want to say I told them so, but I did tell them so. It might be a problem if every day your mayor is every day that y'all are failures. He's hyped. He is literally fear-mongering about crime all day, just creating all this hysteria, 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 hysteria. And then he's essentially telling y'all that y'all are failing and Democrats are in every office. So who do you think is going to fall back on? But instead of getting it together and maybe not rallying behind this cop in the first place, they'll be stuck with him. No. Right. Eric Adams was, was a cop, everyone, in case you didn't know yep. that. Yeah. Yep. And it was just rolling him out like, oh, this messaging expert, Pelosi them had him at the DNC conventions and stuff. And now look, and now look, and now, now you're shocked. Now you're shocked that a, a candidate could come in and take, like, it's not like, it's important to remember, Zeldin is not a genius. He didn't come up with these talking points, all right? These talking points were fed, were fed. This is literally the campaign that Eric Adams has been on all year. All he did was he's literally invoked Eric Adams himself. So, of course, the people are going to think, you know what I mean? You're going to see, you're going to see uh, support mobilized around that. But honestly, it's basically just Democrats being uh, afraid and always letting Republicans lead. Hmm. And what about this talking point? You, you hear people talking all the time about, oh, look at this ending bail. This is this person just came out and killed someone because of the bail reform. Can you cut, shed some clarity in that area? Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Again, more just more propaganda, more baseless propaganda. First of all, New York City still has a cash bail system. I, I want to make sure that's known. New York City very much so still has cash bail. What happened with bail reform at the top of 2020, which was a move to decarcerate Rikers and get us um, towards, you know, bail reform and also getting us towards the vision of closing Rikers because that's a human rights crisis. Um, but bail reform made certain misdemeanors, misdemeanors and nonviolent crimes, nonviolent felonies, nonviolent crime, uh, non-bail eligible. However, for everything else, violent crime, assault, murder, all these other things people are talking about, cash bail, not only can and will be set on, but statistics have showed that the introduction of, of bail reform has actually led them to set bail higher on those charges. Second of all, on any case, this has always been the case and it will always be the case. If you are out on bail for anything in New York and you're rearrested or you violate the terms of your release, bail will be set on you. You will be remanded. That's just absolutely factual. So that's this whole myth, this whole idea that these people are out here just committing crime and they're just getting a free, it literally does not work like that. If you violate the terms of your release, you are going, you're going to jail. More importantly, the whole purpose of bail is to ensure that people return to court. Prior to bail reform, about 15, uh, about 15% of people didn't return to court. After bail reform, about 9%. So actually bail reform has been incredibly successful. Then as far as all these people fear-mongering about violence and people recommend violence. So the, uh, the Brennan Center did a study and they studied over 100,000 uh, cases between 2020 to 2021. And only less than 2% of people were rearrested for felonies or violent crime. So... Then on top of that, most cases in New York State, let alone New York City, over 80% of cases that are charged as felonies are resolved with a non-criminal conviction altogether. So it's just a myth. It's just a myth. And what about the, the stories about rates of crime? The crime rate is going up? Yeah. First of all, so they actually, studies are actually just dropped on this yesterday, a beautiful chart. Actually, I wish I had had to link. But not only is the, the crime rate up marginally, despite the fact, what is up is crime coverage. Crime coverage is up. Crime is not what's drastically up. Crime coverage is up. But more importantly, even if it is, 
that still is not an argument for that is not an argument in favor of continuing to do the same things that we've been doing because that's what we're currently doing and also uh requires us to interrogate why crime would be up if crime is up in new york city in 2022 it might have something to do with the fact that in 20 first of all new york new york city is one of the most expensive places to live in the world our current rent has gone up to an average of four thousand dollars yet the minimum wage is what fifteen dollars you lose forty percent of your income in taxes this is an astronomically expensive place to live in and so if you see crime it's because you see poverty and that is just true that's not that's not a talking point i would like the the vast majority of the people in the criminal system are poor are literally living underneath the poverty line but specifically in new york city almost everybody is represented by a public defender and that means you have little to no income so it would have something to do with the fact that New York City was locked down in a pandemic. Businesses closed down. We had a, we had an eviction moratorium for months because people could not pay their rent. Now imagine what New York City rent is thousands of dollars uh, uh, racking up after months and months and months and months. And then they just up and lifted the eviction moratoriums. So tons of people end up homeless, end up homeless with nowhere to go. Yeah, that's why. That's why crime would be up because people are poor. And how does just for I mean, I think a lot of people know this, but some people I think it's worth for breaking it down. And you, I've heard you do this, but why does poverty create? I want to be careful. It's not like poor people. This is not about individuals. But why does lack of resources? Why does that create more crime than why does that create crime? In other words, why do people people who are hard on crime or tough on crime or people who want to get rid of crime often don't understand that the things that they're advocating for, which is like mass incarceration or more cops or austerity, actually creates a lot more crime. Yeah. that's what, My thing is this, right? And in life, in life, if we want to stop anything, if we want to we, we want to stop or start any type of behavior we want, we, we have to examine it. That's always it. Why is this? Why is this happening? Right. Why is this happening? Because that's how we would get something, something to stop. And the same thing, obviously, is what we need to do for crime. But people are reluctant to do it. And it's because we have created an entire large profit system. One, we've we've created an entire profit system around this criminal system. But two, this criminal system specifically uh, polices certain certain populations that the larger powers that be want to see police. And that's just the truth of it. Because the reality is, we know this. If you were the same under the the most, the safest communities are not the most police communities. They are the most resourced communities. We know this. All of the areas that they call high crime areas are the most under-resourced communities that have continued to be that way generation after generation after generation. Because, of course, if you saddle people, you're taking the poorest populations and you're saddling them with criminal convictions and all of the fines, rap sheets, collateral consequences of not being able to get a job, not being able to get housing. All of those things follow them for literally the rest of their lives. And thus also all of the children that they produce, the neighborhoods that they produce, the communities. So you are literally guaranteeing that a community exists in poverty. And I mean, as far as why it would lead to crime, because if you don't, and and it's not just, I want to say this about crimes and poverty. People like to think of crimes and poverty, like, oh, they stole something. Um, you know, they, they can understand, oh, they stole food or they stole, you know, a thing, how that's a crime of poverty, but they don't see that for like, everything else, assault, mental, anything else that comes out of it. But it's like, if you don't have money, if you don't have the resources to deal with anything in your life, how do you think that impacts how you start to think, how you start to feel, how you start to react and everything else conditionally that you're dealing with? If nobody has, you know how many clients I have, like where a mother has been trying to get mental health resources for a child literally since he was born and can't, you know what I mean? A lifetime, a lifetime of doing that and not being able to, you can't get educated. You, you, you can't get proper education. You can't get proper housing. You can't buy proper things. That affects how you respond to life situations and life's actors. You're, you're essentially, another thing we have to remember too, when we judge, when we don't look at violence and these different types of things, we look at them as divorced from poverty and divorced uh, from crime. But 
It's not. You were literally we're, we're putting people in environments where they have nothing and forcing them to fend for themselves and to fight one another and to fight over the scarce amount of resources. That that breeds violence. And then what do you do? You criminalize them and you incarcerate them where they have to, again, fight for their lives. That, again, breeds and indoctrinates violence. And then when they get out, you send them right back into the same under-resourced communities that are already fighting for their lives with that exact, with everything that they've learned to demonstrate what they learned in prison. It's just a, a vicious cycle. So that's why. And so, and what are some of the ways that these problems can be solved? If it's not through incarceration, obviously, or increased police presence, what are the things that we know from research actually lower crime? The, the, the root cause is giving people, giving people money for education, giving people money for housing, giving people help, money for health care and mental health resources, giving people the money to take care of themselves. And that's something that we know and we understand in ev- in every single other context, right? We know that people need the means the means to take care of themselves because, and that's and also, and I think this would tie us to a larger point is listen to those people. The communities are tell tell people what they need. They tell they are literally asking for asking for resources, asking to be heard, asking to have the police taken out of their communities. It's you know whenever they talk about it, it's so interesting. All these different commentators and, and politicians love to use black people as a prop and use victims of crime as a prop to, to to argue in favor of mass incarceration. And they love to be like, "Oh, black people, crime is the the top thing." Black people are thinking about thinking about crime. Everyone is thinking about their safety. Everybody. That's not a secret. That's not a myth. Everybody. Black people. Everyone thinks about crime. That does not mean that we have the same response to how we should deal with it. And black people, statistically, victims advocates are the people that are in favor of criminal justice reform and are telling you, hey, mass incarceration is not helping my community. Policing is not helping my community. Police brutality is not helping my community. So I also think we have to call out these people that continue to, to they end a conversation short. It's just the, the lack of the incomplete rule. Like in court, you, you wouldn't be able to, I can't just insert like an excerpt of our conversation and leave out the rest. That's what they love to do. They love to use black people. Black people care about crime. Yeah, yeah. We're also, if we're, you know what I think is interesting? If black people are the way these people present it, like black people are the um the sole uh, uh perpetrators of crime, right? The so if we're the sole perpetrators of crimes within our own communities, right? That's what they say. Our neighborhoods are the high crime areas, the dangerous areas. So we're also the sole victims. We're the victims, right? We're both the perpetrators and the victims of crime. So then how come if we are telling you, we are the ones telling you we are the most, we have the highest police presence, we are most impacted by this criminal system, and we are telling you it's not helping us. It's not helpful, it's harmful. We do not feel safe. We do, this is not doing anything that was, and you know that because you know that it's literally generation after generation after generation. That's a problem. And what kind of work do you do right now as a lawyer? As a public defender or just in general as a movement lawyer? Both. As a public defender, I represent um, poor, poor anybody, anybody that does, that cannot afford a representation that is arrested and accused of a crime in New York City. I represent you and handle uh, your entire criminal case. And outside of that, as a movement lawyer, I am constantly working with other other like organizations, activists on the ground, whoever, um, to help support them and bring attention to whatever it is that they're fighting and how we can get them the resources. It's a constant thing. Yeah. How do you, is it frustrating? I mean, how do you stay in it? Do you ever want to quit because of No. How, no. No, no. As, uh, as far as just the, the general work as being in like as a public defender, that's a separate question. But as as uh, that's what I was thinking about as a public defender, honestly. Oh, uh, yeah. So that's a longer, that's a longer, a longer answer. But as far as overall, um, when it comes to the liberation of Black people, no, I never, I never, because this is what I would, this is what I would do. Like this is my natural, my natural self. Everything that I say and I advocate for, that's what I would be doing all day, every day, regardless. I just, so I feel these are the things that, um. 
uh, plague my mind most in the world. And it's because it's it's reality. I think that's something I like when I came to America, I came to America because I wanted to be a lawyer. But what made me um, develop a particular interest in wanting to fight for black people is because I couldn't look away. It was literally forced. It wasn't like this. I'm from a black majority country. So I saw it so clearly how racist this country is because it was it was new. Like, what is going on here? This is the wildest experience. And it took me years and years of trying to figure it out. And then like, like just trying to conceptualize what was happening because I had no warning. Like my parents, my parents, like my family still lives in the Bahamas. I came here alone and I was a teenager and no one told me nothing. I didn't have it. So I'm like, what is going on? And I'm in West Virginia. So it took me a while to, yeah, exactly. So then I went to college in Ohio and I started reading like, oh, wait a minute. I started learning. I started studying and I realized like, oh, and I just, I, I can't, I can't not do it. So for me, it's just, and I just look at it as, I look at it as a privilege. I think it's a privilege to be a, every, like black people don't get to opt in to, you know, how you feel about what's happening with the black community or being emotionally invested in that. We don't, you just have to spend your every day, your all day, you're black and that's exhausting. But I have the privilege of being able to go, hey, you know what, my, my career is this, I'm going to argue for this. It's safe. Like the things that I say and I advocate for and stuff, there are all kinds of countless black people that have been killed or are political prisoners or war political the stakes, the stakes are, you know what I mean, really high. I'm in a position of privilege. So honestly, no, I never want to quit. I feel blessed, blessed and highly favored. Awesome. Okay, last thing. If you were working for the Democrats, how would you tell them to deal with crime? How, how would you tell them to talk about it? Like if you were working for, for Hochul or whatever, what would you tell her to her talking points to be? I would have told Hochul from law. First of all, she should have started ages ago. She should have, she should have started ages ago. But she should have, she should have, uh, exposed she should have backed all of the, the the studies and the research that was coming out you know debunking all these things and then she should have probably should have got eric adams on the same page but i think they should have come out and said hey actually this is what it is this is what it is and this is how we've been addressing it and i also think that i think the democrats would be benefited benefited a lot from ha- even having the appearance of community input like i think in a world where hochul had been had come out like talk to the people really campaigned on like okay this is what it actually is this is what y'all are saying what do y'all think how do we respond some level of that but it was her her campaigning approach seemed to be very hidden like I'm just gonna hide and then like avoid this thing till the ninth hour but I would have just come up and addressed it directly hey you were in this pandemic this was happening people are a crime is what we're talking about but these are the actual numbers this is what's happening and this is what we've been doing about it and what is the community input I think people would have responded better to that but if you allow the other side to put out a narrative and you never address or debunk it and then you just wait till the ninth hour to act and you still don't debunk it you just act like you're gonna you're gonna just do crime better you know right so i would have been honest honesty would have been my approach too bad it's a little late maybe next time next election anything else you want to share no, no. Y'all follow me on socials at Miss Olurin, M-S-O-L-U-R-I-N. And I have a substack called Olurinati that I publish essays on monthly and I suggest you subscribe. Yeah, it's great. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye, Katie. Bye. Have a great night. That was great. Okay, Olaimi. That was amazing. She's such a great speaker and I'll link to her. Uh, you got to check out her, her, her videos that she puts on Instagram and on Twitter. They're very good. They're pretty funny. She manages to make funny videos about things that are very serious. So we are going to bring in our next guest. Very excited. He's been on the show before. He's joining us from a Kathy Hochul party. That, again, is the current governor of New York, the Democrat, who is facing a much harder challenge than she had uh, anticipated from Lee Zeldin, who um, we were just talking about, who's a right winger, a Trump, a Trumpian Republican 
So we are going to talk to Ross Barkin, who is a journalist and also a novelist. And uh, let's see. Tell us what's happening, Ross. Are you there? Yes. Can, can great. you hear me? Yes, we can hear you. Yep. Okay, great. Yeah, I'm sitting at the Kathy Hochul party right now. Um, it is close to polls closing in New York. Uh, they close at 9 p.m. Uh, Kirsten Gillibrand actually is here speaking to press. I, I see her off to my right. Um, you know, people here are obviously very excited. It's in um, Chinatown in Manhattan. It's at this uh, very lavish-looking uh, former uh, savings bank that's now like this grandiose, uh, I guess, catering hall or something like that. So, you know, it's very interesting. I, I, I still think Kathy Hochul will find a way to win this race. Just the, the math remains with her. New York is such a democratic state. But undoubtedly, the energies with Lee Zeldin, with Republicans right now, I do think down the ballot is going to be a big challenge for Democrats in New York. A lot of swing races in the state. And I would imagine Democrats are going to lose a lot of them uh, in the House, especially. But, you know, we'll see. We'll see. Uh, again, these are we'll know very soon. Um, this is just my sense as of right now that, you know, Hochul will slog her way uh, to victory with a very kind of uninspiring campaign and, and Democrats uh, otherwise are going to have a hard night. And why is it that Zeldin has so much energy behind him? So I think some of it is just the midterm dynamic, which, you know, I think it is boring to say, but that's the reality that we're in a political system where there is always a backlash against the party in power. It happened to George Bush, it happened to Obama, it happened to Trump, it's happened to Biden, right? I also think, you know, there there is a, a sense that Zeldin is tapping into the zeitgeist at the moment, which is this fear of crime, which, you know, it's real. Uh, you, you can't just hand wave it away. There are a lot of people who are both affluent and working class who are worried about crime. And Zeldin has been talking about it nonstop. He definitely has gotten a lot of traction with that. He's going to get Democratic crossover votes. There's certainly concerns about inflation as well. But my sense here in the final days and weeks, the messaging has really been around crime. And Hochul is, is on the defensive. And, you know, I, I think part of her issue is she didn't spend enough time in very Democratic parts of the state, particularly New York City. We'll see what turnout looks like. She may have gotten enough Democrats to come out in the end. But I do think for a long time she took the race for granted. Zeldin did not. I mean, Zeldin's a Trump Republican, but he was very good at um, making himself appear more moderate than he is and really uh, taking the focus off of Trump and just campaigning a lot. He was in New York City a lot. And that may pay dividends. You know, we'll see. Uh, but certainly, if you're, if you're going off vibes, the vibes are with Zeldin. I think if you're going off polls and, and data, you, you, it, it's very hard to pick against Hochul. But, but no doubt, like, the feeling is not with her right now. But feelings don't always win elections. Right. You wrote a piece at your Substack about attending some literary magazine parties and then attending some political rallies. And you said that the rallies were less attended, was one exception, than the literary parties. So can you compare these two types of parties you were at? Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, <laughs> look, post-pandemic, man, the literary scene's getting hot again in New York, and that's great. The, these new magazines are really, you know, drawing people, like many hundreds of people, who, who, who probably maybe in a thousand people. I don't know. I'm not good at counting crowds, but it's very crowded. And, you know, the, the Hochul rally, which had with Biden at Sarah Lawrence College, was, like, very well attended. You know, they had it on a big lawn. People came. 
she did, a, she did a rally with Hillary and Kamala Harris at Barnard College, which apparently hit their capacity, but it was like a pretty small auditorium. And just to me was underwhelming when you consider this is the governor of New York, this is Hillary Clinton, who is a celebrity regardless, and the vice president of the United States, right? And the Bill Clinton rally was really, uh, you know, I don't know who it was who it was for, quite frankly, because in this like very strange, out of the way studio space in downtown Brooklyn, where regular people like weren't notified about it, and it was just a bunch of like members of organized labor in like a little pen uh, cheering for her. And yeah, I mean, I mean, the, the again, the energy is not there with her. People are not excited about her. She didn't really offer any affirmative vision for what she wants to do in the next four years. Like, I don't think she's a bad governor of any means. She's only been governor for a year a little bit since taking over for Cuomo. But there's just not really like a public argument. You know, she didn't really run any any big policies. She talked about abortion for a while. But as we know, you can't only do that and then hope to coast. Um, there, there's just no finely tuned message. And I, I think she's, she's paying a price for that. You know, people are not excited to vote for her. They will because they don't like Zelda and um, but but you, you just see there, there's this lackadaisical kind of listless nature to all of it and to our events as well. Um, now, again, I, I do think she'll win, but it was just an interesting contrast. I, I, by coincidence, went to these parties and then went to these rallies at almost the same time. It's like, wow, I mean, I can see where people are genuinely more excited and it wasn't at the uh, local events. Yeah. And what other races are you keeping an eye on? So um, I'm looking at certainly the House races. Uh, there, there's a lot of competitive races. You know, I think progressives will, will feel a little schadenfreude if Sean Patrick Maloney loses in the Hudson Valley. You know, I, I you know he was like a, a Cuomo shill and you know very hostile to like the left wing of the party, and he's the head of the DCCC. There's like a good chance he's going to lose his um, election. You know, Long Island has four competitive races. I think there's a chance Republicans win all of them. Um, you have in in the Hudson Valley and Syracuse area, um, you know, Pat Ryan, who won in August, really running on abortion rights. He is in a tough race. Um, Mark Molinaro, a Republican who once ran against Cuomo, he might go to Congress. And then, you know, Syracuse area as well, where John Katko, who's sort of a moderate Republican, he's retiring. And that's kind of a toss up, but could go the Republicans way. So, I mean, New York, because of the way redistricting went, which is a long story, has like a lot of now uh, toss up districts. And this is like not a good year for Democrats to have a lot of toss up districts. So I imagine they will lose the lion's share of those districts. Um, but, you know, we shall see. As I said, polls close very soon. Right. Um, what about uh, you, you focus a lot on DSA. Uh, what uh, what what are they doing this election? Yeah. So it's funny. I, I think like progressives and, and, and leftists and, and DSA elected officials are doing more for Hochul than honestly, like the state party is like, I mean, they're doing it under the push to vote for, for WFP. So the Working Families Party in New York now has to win ballot status every two years, thanks to Cuomo, another long story. And so they need a certain number of votes on their line to, to basically stay a political party. So a lot of DSA and a lot of leftists are saying, you know, vote vocal on WFP to keep the WFP around. Yeah, I've written critically WFP, you know, they and DSA have a good relationship. It's not a perfect one, but I think a lot of socialists in the state see it as kind of a a worthy ally and vehicle to have around. So, you know, to the credit, I well, it depends on your view, I would say, but, you know, a, a lot of the DSA electeds are 
trying to pull votes out for Hochul. You know, I, I think under the correct argument that you can get socialist policy out of Hochul, if Zeldin is governor, it's all done. Like, there, there's no chance you're getting any stronger tenant protections. You're getting nothing on climate change. The whole DSA agenda in Albany, which has actually had real success, you know, even, you know, criminal justice reforms, it is all DOA under Republican governor. Whereas Hochul, you know, she's going to not be, uh, you know, an overly powerful figure. She's someone you can pressure. She is a moderate, but, uh, you know, she is someone who, in theory, you can uh, work with or, or at least um, push in the direction you want her to push in. Whereas, I mean, Zeldin is a Republican. Zeldin's a Trump guy. I mean, Zeldin will probably be governing for Fox News. I mean, I, I don't think he's going to really want to govern in a way where like a Charlie Baker or Larry Hogan will govern, where they just really want to run a blue state and, and, and do their best. My sense is he's ambitious. He wants to probably be president. And if he's governor of New York, everything he does is going to be probably about the national spotlight. And that means no leftist uh, legislation is is getting past his desk. He'll veto it. And they probably won't have the numbers for a veto override. So I think DSA rightly sees this as an important election because to have a state agenda, you have to have Kathy Hochul in there. Uh, Zeldin, it's finished. What are the types of things for the cynics out there, including myself a little bit, but what are the types of things that uh, DSA was able to get through uh, Hochul with Hochul or Cuomo? Yeah, I mean, so I mean, so uh, funnily enough, a lot of the big progressive accomplishments came when DSA had less members, which was in 2019, where a lot of progressive Democrats won and Julia Salazar won. Um, and Cuomo was kind of on the defensive. They got the partial end of cash bail, which is a very, very big deal, which helped. Zeldin is now dragging Democrats around, but, you know, is a very important criminal justice reform. Um, you got stuff on climate change, you know, really important legislation, um, you know, that I think will pay dividends in the long term. Strengthening tenant protections, very big deal. I mean, it's a little wonky, but the um, ending the ability of landlords to take apartments out of the rent stabilization system, you know, that really did matter. Um, I, I think on the housing side, um, you know, progressives and leftists have made progress in Albany where they did not for a very long time. And now the block of DSA members is growing. It's still small. I mean, next year, DSA is going to have three state senators in a body of 63, and they'll have uh, five or maybe six state assembly members. So it's not a lot, but it's more than zero or one. So it's easy to be cynical, but... I do think they have a real strategy because to get policy done and make change, you have to do it through the state legislature in New York. And what we've seen in the past is if you do work as a block, you can pressure other Democrats to kind of do the things you want to do. So, um, you know, I think there are victories they can win next year with Hochul there. Zeldin, you win nothing. Uh-huh. How does uh, Hochul compare to Cuomo? I think in some ways she's similar in that, you know, she, she's not at all progressive. I think her, her, she fundraises from the very same people, you know, she fundraises from wall street, from the real estate industry. Um, her instincts are not with the left at all. I think the difference is she's not vindictive. She doesn't have like these sort of quasi psychopathic tendencies and she's someone that you can negotiate with. I mean, it, it wasn't, you know, the first budget was a mixed bag for the left. You know, she, she's, screwed them on uh she did partially repeal some of those uh bail reforms she got the huge tax break for the bill stadium which was like a terrible economic development policy she did plow a lot of money into public education which was a big deal which was something progressives wanted for a long time 
Um, you know, I think unlike Cuomo, she's not going to play games with the public university system. That was something Cuomo for years. Like I went to a SUNY, SUNYs and CUNYs. Like it felt like every budget cycle were fighting for their lives with the Cuomo administration that like, you know, on a whim would just pull funding and then restore it. And then you had to have like marches and protests and it was just a huge mess. So again, like I see Hochul as a conventional moderate. She, she's nothing for the left to celebrate by any means, but I think because she's more conventional, she's someone that can be worked with or worked against. Whereas with Cuomo, I mean, you know, I think the only time progressives got anything from Cuomo was when he was probably in 2019 thinking of running for president and was on the defensive a bit when Democrats retook the state Senate. But I think beyond that, he was just such a active enemy of the left. I don't think Hochul is an active enemy of the left. I think she is not an ally, but Cuomo would actively find ways, it's felt like every year, to undermine uh, progressives um, and, and socialists in, in New York State. Yeah, it, uh, of course, people may not know about this, but Cuomo, in addition to having uh, a lot of blood on his hands, and I think, in my opinion, because of the way he dealt with COVID and gave, of course, immunity to nursing homes and hospitals when it came to negligence, something that uh, David Sirota has written a lot about and Ron Kim has talked a lot about. When Cuomo's aide basically confessed that they had cooked the books and distorted the numbers on the deaths, Ron Kim, apparently, who is an assemblyman, was going to speak out about it publicly and Cuomo called him and threatened to destroy him. Which you know because, of course, you wrote a book called The Prince about Cuomo. <laughs> so you know his... Uh, uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I mean, Hochul's just not going to do that. You know, Hochul's not calling up state assembly members and threatening them. Now, of course, I think there's an argument to make, you know, style, you know, it should be style over substance. And, and I think the substance, the jury's out. But again, she's only been governor for a year. I think next year, assuming she wins, will be very interesting. I, I think she's going to feel... Uh, cross-current pressures on the left and the right. You know, the right is going to pressure her because Republicans are going to do well tonight. And I think the left is going to pressure her because, like, you know, we're the only ones trying to even pull a vote out for you, like, realistically. Um, but she's got to win first, right? Polls close uh, eight minutes. And again, I hesitate to back off my view that she'll find a way to win. But I'll tell you what, you're out there. You, you feel, like, viscerally Zeldin's momentum and just the number of people who are like openly excited in the way they're openly excited about Trump. You know, I, I liken my substack to Trump v. Hillary Clinton. There are a lot of similar vibes that election where people were not excited about Hillary. They were excited about Trump. I think the ultimate difference is that the lack of an electoral college and that Zeldin's got to find a way to 50%. Trump never did. And so I think that'll bail her out. But again, I do get some of those, you know, 2016 was the first presidential campaign I ever covered. And there are there are vibes. I'll tell you what the the the, the low key rallies, the the pulling up, pulling in the uh, faded stars of the party, um, you know the kind of hectoring people uh, to vote. Uh, it, it it does bring back a lot of memories. Whether that means it'll end that way uh, remains to be seen. Yeah, one of my one of my favorite uh, Zeldin moments was when he uh, asked. Ilan Omar to condemn some anti-Semitic messages that someone left on his machine uh, <laughs> as if she was behind them or had anything to do with them. 
Yeah, I mean, I think in a way, Hokel's lucky that Zelda is still a MAGA guy at the end of the day. You know, I, I, I think that's a saving grace for her. Because if you are not a MAGA Republican, and there are non-MAGA Republicans, uh, some who are in New York, kind of just like regular moderates or just, you know, very, you know, pro-Wall Street and, and tough on crime, but aren't like pro-Trump really, and are sort of acceptable to like middle class and affluent left-leaning people who, who kind of vote on style, not substance she would probably outright lose. Like, I think if there's a Michael Bloomberg candidate in this election, she she, she would be finished. I think because he is, at the end of the day, just the guy who, like, trolls Ilhan Omar and voted to, you know, overturn the 2020 election and, and you know, indulged entirely in the far right. I think that will probably cap him. Um, but he's gotten very far being that guy, and I think that is because he's not stupid and he's really sanded down the edges off of that and really stopped talking about Trump and just talked about crime and quality of life almost entirely. And and that discipline has paid off for him so far. Yeah. Uh, last thing, shifting gears a little bit. You're you've written about Ukraine. Um, yes. So what are your what's your take on Ukraine? What's my take? Wow. What's my take on Ukraine? How much time do you have? I mean, look, it, it's a hor- it's horrible. You know, Russia. You know, very much is the instigator here. They launched a horrific and stupid invasion, and it has caused you know absurd amounts of, of damage. You know, both in, in the literal sense and the economic sense. And and, and Putin deserves to be condemned. You know, I. I'm not an apologist for Putin in any way. Right. Um, again, you have to give the preamble because then my next point is, and I think you're actually starting to see it quietly. You see articles about it that the, even the Biden administration is now starting to back channel diplomacy. And my, my view from March has always been you have to avoid a nuclear confrontation at all costs and you have to find a way to escalate. You have to find a way to um, attempt diplomacy to end this war as soon as possible. For a long time, liberals didn't want to hear it. Um, a lot of them don't want to hear it still. They think, let's put you know, uh, pour unlimited amounts of, of arms into Ukraine and, and destroy Russia. You can't destroy Russia. It's impossible. It will never happen. And um, giving unlimited amounts of military aid, more than we gave to uh, funneled into basically this point, Iraq and Afghanistan, it is something that deserves scrutiny. I'm, I'm sorry, you know, we, we have to, you know, in a time where we're saying that we have to cut funding in so many other ways, you know, you absolutely have to scrutinize, uh, you know, tens of billions of dollars in military aid. So I do support diplomacy. I just support de-escalation. I, I don't want a nuclear confrontation. That would be a disaster. And I hope Biden and Europe can bring Zelensky and Putin to the table because that's what's going to have to happen. That's the only way this ends or you get a war for five or ten years and hundreds of thousands of people die, if not even more, or you get something more catastrophic. And I don't want a World War One. I. I don't want uh, a nuclear war. Um, I, I want peace. There's no easy way to peace. There's no convenient way to peace. I think that's where liberals get very angry and go, oh, you're saying concessions. But, you know, you have to really um, consider diplomacy. And I think that the good news is that even the United States is in that boat now. Yeah, I think it's a bit delayed. But, yeah. <laughs> a bit delayed. A bit delayed, yeah. Well, I will let you go because I hear people are yes, really people are shouting now. What, what are they shouting about? Night. What are they shouting about? Oh, Tom, just the state controllers on stage, uh, just that's being exciting. Excited and trying to no. get people excited. N- nothing is coming yet, but they're doing their rally thing. All right. Well, thank you so much, Ross, for coming on. Yeah, no problem. Thank you for having me. Right. Any predictions? Last Sorry? minute predictions. 
Any last uh, final uh, predictions? I guess Republicans take the Senate and the House, and uh, Hope will find a way to win. That'd be my final prediction. But we'll see. I don't know. I'm not, uh, I'm not a genius. I don't have a crystal ball. Right. That's my lazy prediction. All right. Cool. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you for having me. Thanks for coming. All right, guys. That was Ross Barkin. And we are going to bring in our next guest. Very excited. Thanks again for listening to The Katie Helper Show. To hear the rest of that discussion, please join the Patreon at patreon.com slash The Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash The Katie Helper Show. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, we remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. Our show is produced by me, Katie Helper, Nick Palm, Brad Bloom is our audio engineer and an associate producer on the show. Our researcher is Joshua Bregman. And our theme song is by the band Cordova. See you next time.